This might not make much sense to you if you haven't listened to the main episode this week. But I have just really listened to the Zac Efron, Vanessa Hudgens, Gotta Go My Own Way high school musical. And of course, I have scrolled the comments again. And this one, this one got to me. The comment says, this is the rejection that led to Zac Efron becoming Ted Bundy. <laughs> Why? Listen, sometimes true crime is truly in the most of unexpected places. But okay, Maya, why are we why are we gathered here today? We are here to talk about yet another case of a witness that led to false trial, person falsely accused. In this particular case, again, person falsely accused for the crime that they didn't commit, and here with really devastating consequences. Next week, if Knockwood, if not Knockwood, if I'm actually on holiday, meaning just going home for the first time in two years, I shall be giving you guys the mini so that you might think has nothing to do with the theme of the month, because I'm technically recycling it from YouTube. But but think twice, think twice when you listen to it. I'm not gonna spoil it. It's one of my YouTube materials. Think twice. Yeah, okay, you got that? Cool. I think you shouldn't be repeating yourself. You should rather stay away from Vanessa Hudgens and Zac Efron when they were like 15 and tell people about the story of Sally Clark. My is the name. By all means necessary is the podcast name. And we are talking about expert testimony in the case of Sally Clark. This is really one of those lesser-known cases from the UK that fascinates me. It fascinates me, first of all, how it is this lesser-known when it is a case about death of two children that they have at first suspected was as a result of their mom's negligence. But also why I'm surprised that this is so undercovered is because of the expert testimony, it is because of the lack of consequences that were there as the aftermath of this case. So let me tell you all about it. It all starts in December 1996, when Sally Clark was home alone with one of her children. Christopher was only two years old, and sometime during this night, Sally would find him in the cot unresponsive, so she decided, of course, logically to ring the ambulance. Once the ambulance made it to the scene, they attempted to resuscitate the baby, but they had to pronounce Christopher dead. And the post-mortem would suggest that he died of natural causes, and possibly of a respiratory infection. Now, this story would have stopped here if it wasn't for two years later, in January of 1998, that Sally was, yet again, home alone when she realized her second child, Harry, who was only two months old, wasn't breathing. So, yet again, Sally rings the ambulance and they figure out that this happened under almost identical circumstances. The post-mortem report here, though, is going to describe the signs of recent bleeding from the back of Harry's eyes and the bleeding in his spinal cord area. And now the police will be called because the bodies of both kids were examined by the same pathologist. Sally would end up being arrested, but aside from two dead children of hers, 
that have died when they were only under her supervision, there was no other evidence suggesting murder. So let's talk a bit about Sally before we go to speaking about her trial. Sally was born in Wiltshire to her father, who was a police officer, and a mom who was a hairdresser at the time. She studied geography, but then when she met her husband, Steve, in 1990, and they got married, she actually left her job at the City of London to train in the same profession, to become a solicitor herself. She finished her degree, she trained at a law firm, and then in 1994, she would move with her husband to join this law firm in Manchester. Christopher, their first son, would be born in 1996, and the court documents would later go on to describe him as a healthy baby. The historical documents would also show that Sally suffered with postnatal depression and that she would receive counseling for it. But this counseling would be over by the time her second son, Harry, was born in 1997. On both occasions, Sally was the one at home with them, and there would be some evidence of trauma, as if showing that somebody was attempting to resuscitate them. So this case now, because she was arrested, goes to trial to Chester Crown Court. The argument presented by Sally's defense team would be that both children died of sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. Now, because SIDS freaks me out, and I don't completely understand it, and apparently neither really does the internet, I went down a rabbit hole. So let me tell you a bit about SIDS. SIDS, as the name suggests, is the sudden, unexpected, and usually unexplained death of this apparently healthy baby. It's sometimes referred to as the cot death, and more than 200 babies die from SIDS every year in the UK. It usually happens during the first six months of baby's life, and infants who are born prematurely or are at a low birth weight are at greater risk. And here, Harry matches this description, because Harry was actually three weeks premature. SIDS is somehow, according to probably studies in these deaths, also more common in baby boys. And usually it happens when the baby is asleep, but sometimes it can happen when they were awake too. The only ways to reduce the risk of SIDS, because you can't even fully really prevent it, is not smoking when you're pregnant or after the child is born, and also placing the baby on the back when you're placing them in the cot so that they're not on their stomach. So it's like trying to reduce the chance of them smothering. So environmental stresses that contribute to seeds can be the smoke of cigarettes, can be getting tangled in the bedding, or certain minor illnesses like obstruction of breathing. Also, NHS website try to explain that you shouldn't be co-sleeping, like sleeping with your baby on the same bed or sofa or chair because there is correlation between that and seeds. They basically can't really explain it. They can just tell us like how to try to prevent it. And also, what I find strange is that this article that I read on the NHS website is from 2018. And apparently, at least this article, NHS pages, according to this, are reviewed every three years because it's supposed to be reviewed on the same month in 2021. 
that just struck me as scary as shit. Like, why are we not reviewing them more often? Like, is there nothing that we could have concluded in the past three years when it comes to SIDS that we already have, like, no information about now in 2021? It's just scary. And usually whoever is with a baby, whichever parent it is, will end up being blamed for it. The prosecution team will call three particular experts to the stand. And with the medical evidence available, all three of them would say that both baby deaths were caused deliberately, either by shaking them or smothering them. Their first witness would be this Professor Green. And his problem was that his opinion would change during this trial. Now, this isn't necessarily a reason for concern if new evidence is uncovered, let's say. A change of opinion can also occur if the initial testing was done poorly or if the expert themselves consider that their initial evaluation was shit. Professor Green would take the stand and he would say originally that he agrees with other pathologists on the case that both babies died from retinal injury and this was due to the baby being shaken. But then he would end up meeting with the retinal expert and then he considered this alternative opinion and said that this retinal damage was actually caused post-mortem. After this, he would completely say that he wants the previous statement disregarded, he wants it recounted, and at the same time, he gave a different possibility, an alternative opinion, if you wish, that smothering was indeed a cause of death in this case. As I mentioned, you need some evidence to support this change of opinion. You can't just be winging it and playing with person's life. Because then that calls into question your competency as a witness. And this person just went from shaking to retinal damage to smothering. Within like a couple of years, like as if nothing has happened. The second source of error was this person called Dr. Williams. This guy at autopsy performed some microbiological tests on Harry's blood, the body tissue, and the spinal fluid. This Dr. Williams, this dude, decided to not make neither the prosecution nor the defense aware that these tests existed. Had he presented these tests to the jury, had he given them to the courts, it would have probably casted a doubt and offered an alternative explanation towards Harry's death as something else than smothering. And also, had they known this, well, that would have casted a doubt behind Christopher's death. When Sally's defense team asked him on the stand why didn't he share these test results, Dr. Williams said that he didn't think that it was his job to refer to tests that are not relevant to the cause of death. So just let's ignore this whole other possibility and just continue with like the bias point of view. Yeah, yeah, that's how Dr. Williams thought here the job was done. Then, as he's on the stand, this home office pathologist asks him if he by any chance withheld some bacteriology results on Clark's second baby, showing the presence of bacteria in multiple places in this um, in multiple places in Harry's cerebrospinal fluid. Because if you remember, they have actually believed that Harry was bleeding from multiple places in his body. 
and they point out to this note that he made in his report and they were like so you see there is something that you have named c and s results does that sound familiar and in his response he just didn't accept that he knew what this was about when clearly these were the exact results that yet again he has withheld from the court Williams also fucked up on like a third level because he was supposed to be taking the photographic evidence of the baby's bodies and the pictures that he took were apparently unusable. They were of such poor quality that they couldn't have even been used at court. And then there was a guy called Sir Samuel Roy Meadow. And yes, you read that right. He is a sir. And this guy was what this case is really famous for. Meadow is a retired British pediatrician. He was one of the first people over here that wrote about Munchausen by proxy. And in 1998, he would actually be knighted because of his services to child health. But his work soon became controversial. It wouldn't be Sally's case. It would be a case after that. But he also wrote this book that was called ABC of Child Abuse. And here, in the most unimaginatively titled book, I'm pretty sure that's not a word, but why would you name it that? He would write one of his most famous lines. One sudden infant death is a tragedy. Two is suspicious. Three is murder, until proven otherwise. So you're not really that sure about this yourself. But you still manage to establish this as Meadow's Law. He tried to establish this as a law that child protection services would use when establishing whether or not to report this to the police. It will come as no surprise to anybody that this law will eventually be discredited. Because of his expertise, because of his work in child deaths, Meadow would go on to testify in many other trials, including caught deaths, including SIDS. And he's one of those typical scientists, one of those typical douches that would do everything the opposite way. It's like the complete opposite way in this man's head. Because he would make his theory fit the evidence rather than, you know, the way it's supposed to be, like the other way around. And in these other trials, he would be heard saying other quotes that he probably thought are going to be quoted for centuries ahead in all of the books ever written on SIDS. He would say there's no evidence that caught deaths runs in families, but there is plenty of evidence that child abuse does. So because he was the numbers guy, because he was so respected in this area, he was called to the stand in Sally Clark's case. And he said that when you look at the probability of two deaths caused by seeds in one family... If you look at a household where none of the external factors that we spoke about, like presence of a smoker, age of a child's mother, would be present, the probability of even one death occurring would be 1 in 8,543. And if you think about a household with no external factors and two sudden infant deaths occurring, that would square the original figure making this a 1 in 73 million chances. So extremely fucking rare. Now, to make this really resonate with the jury, he compared his statistic here now with you betting on a horse in a Grand National, and you betting on a really shitty one. 
the one in the 80th place compared to the one in the first, and you betting on this shitty horse four years in a row and winning each time. Like, how would that be possible? What Meadow did here, because this was a bullshit statistic, because he was not a statistician in the first place, meaning that he didn't have expertise in this area that he was convincing the jury about, was committing a prosecutor's fallacy. Prosecutor's fallacy is the fallacy in statistical reasoning. This particular fallacy was the one where somebody like Meadow here would find a loophole in your logical way of thinking. This means that you can easily actually confuse somebody between two conditional probabilities. Probability of A given B and probability of B given A. So let's say you say somebody's guilty among X amount of adults living in the area. And this guilty person also matches the evidence. So the probability that this person is innocent is like XYZ number. And then based on that number, you would say there is one in six chances that the person matching the evidence is guilty and five in six chances that they are innocent. So there is a high chance that the person, despite matching the damning evidence, would be innocent in this case. But this was unfortunately only looked after Sally Clark was convicted and she received two life sentences for the crimes that she never committed. If you put everything into the picture here, she was a daughter of a police officer, she was a solicitor, somebody respected in the society. And even if she wouldn't be all of this, they still vilified her in the media. And other inmates knew what she was in for, and she would have been treated as the lowest of the low. She was a target for other inmates as soon as she entered the prison walls. Here, even if you were to believe this 1 in 73 million number, there just isn't a workaround when you try to figure out if the child actually died of natural causes or of foul play. So here the relevant expert shouldn't have been answering the question such as what is the probability that these deaths were natural, but more, is it more likely that these deaths were natural rather than foul play was involved, rather than these deaths being deliberate? Sally's husband, though, never gave up on her. He hired this private law firm and they started appealing. And on the second appeal... In October in 2000, all of the poor work by the pathologist on this case was finally made public. All of the shitty pictures that were taken, the tests that weren't presented in trial, and finally this prosecutor's fallacy. Because of how slowly court systems work, her case would be referred back to the Court of Appeal, and her convictions were finally overturned in January 2003. And everything you really need to know about Sally, apart from that she was actually a decent human being who hasn't done this, who was completely innocent, was that at the time of her release, she said, today is not a victory. We are not victorious. There are no winners here. We have all lost out. When you look at the bigger picture, this case did bring out some changes in guidelines, in standards, in practices that determine how expert witnesses are chosen now. 
regardless of this, there are still issues when it comes to public trust in the use of expert witnesses. Some of them include the lack of structure or rather inability to agree when to instruct and use the expert witness in trial. Because, of course, if you were to hear something like Meadows' statement towards the end of the trial, it would be a lot more impactful than hearing him blabber like this at the beginning of it. But also, on the other hand, the earlier you introduce an expert witness, more time you give, for example, to the defense team to identify certain issues, meaning maybe a miscarriage of justice wouldn't have happened. Another area with a lack of guidance is using a single expert in trial in one area. There just aren't guidance or rules in place when to use one witness within a field of interest, how this is decided and affected by the resources, by the financial aid, whether it is provided by the families or the court, and how this in turn actually affects the evidence that is provided in court. Are we presenting substandard evidence to the court that is then discussed by some substandard experts, which was truly the issue in this case that still isn't fully resolved to this day. After Sally Clark's case and after another woman was wrongfully convicted and served some years in prison, was released in 2003, in December 2005, Ellen Williams was removed from the list of the home office pathologists. That same year, Professor Meadow was also struck off from GMC, which is like a register for GPs here, for doctors in the UK. You need to be on it to practice medicine. Meadow would actually be reinstated on GMC, but he actually removed himself from it in 2009. And you're like, okay, so that sounds shady. And that is because it is. So so it is a good thing because from that point on, he was unlicensed to practice medicine. But also this voluntary erasure from the GMC list meant that he is no longer answerable to the GMC if any other concerns were to be raised. Basically, he made sure that he doesn't get any jail time for convicting multiple women of caught death that they never committed. This drives me insane that you can remove yourself of the GMC list while you practiced medicine, while you studied for it, while you put people in jail and that you have just no repercussions. No, nothing happens to you. I would like to tell you that this story ends with a happy ending, but unfortunately it doesn't. Sally Clark did go back to practicing law. She was allowed to practice it again in 2003 after her conviction was quashed. But she would end up dying in 2007 and the cause of death was put as alcohol intoxication. Her family would just say that she never fully recovered from the effects of this miscarriage of justice. She never fully recovered from the time that she spent in prison being seen by the public as somebody who killed her own two children. That she would have good days and bad days, but that we need to see this for what it is. She lost five to six years of her life to what her friends and family see as a state-sponsored torture. And that is truly what it is, because it is allowed by our governments, it is allowed by our courts, 
Because if we learned anything from the topic of the minisodes for this month, truly when it comes to court, it is all about who can spin a story better. Nobody has the defendant's best interest at heart. And here before researching these cases this month, I thought this was a uniquely American problem where we don't necessarily care about wrongfully convicted somebody because there's always appeals, right? Like, what's the matter of wrongfully convicted a person of killing two of their own children? Yeah, that, that that's totally fine. Let's not even double-think this. Let's not even think twice about who we put on the stand and how that might impact this person's life. So if there's a single note that I would like you to leave on after listening to the minisodes of this month, discussing eyewitnesses testimonies, discussing jailhouse niche testimonies, expert witness testimonies in trial, that is to inform yourself within this area as a potential possible juror. Question everything from the expertise of the stats that this witness is giving you understand from the reasonings of why six people would falsely identify the same person, what might have affected that, whether that was a problem with the system, whether that was the problem with the police officers and how we conduct lineups, whether always try to see the bigger picture. And finally, and somehow most ridiculously, why a jailhouse snitch would maybe provide testimony that would put so many people in jail, like dozens of them. Always question who is benefiting out of it. Always try to see a bigger picture. And in doing so, in questioning the motives behind people's actions, you will be a better juror. And by doing that, you will also be making this world a better place. One motive at a time. And now goodbye, fuckers. It's about midnight, 00.08 here, where I am recording right now. And uh, that's a wrap for me today. Yeah, I I would say so. I would say so. (laughs) See you next week. Bye, fuckers. I have no voice. No voice left in me.